Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, Boko Haram kidnaps over 250 schoolgirls in western Nigeria and creates international outrage. Special guest, human rights and global legal expert Betsy Walters joins the discussion. The Veterans Administration scandal continues to grow. Could this be a bigger problem for the Democrats than Benghazi? Speaking of Benghazi, a bad week for the Clintons between Benghazi, Lewinsky, and Nigeria. Can the Clinton machine thwart the bad press? And Michael Sam, and you got Michael Jordan. Are these role models for teenagers and the fallout of the Kiss and the Clippers scandal? This and Tell Me a Story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon, everybody out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday. We're back live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left here at the table, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is former Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Al. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock at the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, and directly across the table from me at the 12 o'clock position, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives, former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, longtime Senate staffer insider, and a very handsome and distinguished factual fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, full of facts today. Oh, great. That's exactly what we need. I wonder if you had to give up the facts for your good looks. Oh, gosh, exactly. Couldn't you bring us a little bowl? And to my right here at the table, to my right here at the table, he is longtime Washington insider and former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And uh, we've got a big show today, but we're going to start off talking about the crisis in Nigeria. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the organization, the militant Islamic organization known as Boko Haram in the northeastern part of Nigeria has, in their latest action, kidnapped over 240 girls at a government-run school in the northeastern provinces of Nigeria. Joining us right now, she is a former attorney with Human Rights Watch, currently a program officer at the International Legal Fund. She is Betsy Walters. Betsy, thank Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
Hey, 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 Betsy, you know, I know that you've been following the situation in Boko Haram, and, and I know that this is something that you guys followed at Human Rights Watch and probably following at the ILF. Uh, you know, Betsy, we saw Boko Haram make a, 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 just a horrific attack on this village in northeastern province, taking 240 girls. It, it, obviously, this has got human rights organizations in an outrage. I, I mean, how many, how many facts that come out of this just makes the international human rights community just froth at the mouth at the outrage at Boko Haram. Oh, well, as you can imagine, it's got my entire field kind of in a tizzy, for lack of a better word, um, you know, because there are so many facets to it. There's uh, the facets that are specific to Nigeria, specific to Western Africa. There's the religious elements in terms of um, of the Islamist movement, there's the female element in terms of the attack against women just trying to get an education, and then obviously there's the diplomatic elements about what exactly the role of U.S. and other uh, major Western powers should be, uh, if any, in this entire conflict. Now, now there were, there, there's very disturbing information, and there were disturbing videos that came out over the past 48 hours showing these girls in Islamic, traditional Islamic dress, uh, basically being forced to cite Quran verses, being forced on them by Boko Haram. But the biggest concern that's got the international rights community, at least what I see, is the leader of this organization has basically come out and said to raise funds, they're willing to sell these girls on the black market. Is, is this something that you've seen before in other organizations, or is this something unique to Boko Haram? Um, it's absolutely something I've seen in other organizations. Um, you know, if you look at the funding for Boko Haram as well as organizations like it, um, they obviously have to use pretty shadowy means to raise a fair amount of money for their weapons and for maintaining their army, for lack of a better term. Um, and so kidnapping is one of the primary ways that Boko Haram and others do that. Now, what's interesting about this is that with Boko Haram specifically, their targets have generally been mid-level government officials, the kind who can't quite afford security details but can afford, let's say, a $10,000 ransom. Because, um, you know, you're going to get a lot in one pop from that kidnapping. So I find this particular kidnapping interesting because they're not going to ransom off these girls. If they did, I mean, they're coming from poor families who couldn't give much. So if they're actually planning on, on raising any money, they would have to sell them. But also reports are now that the girls who may possibly have been sold are being sold to Islamic extremists in neighboring countries for maybe $10 each, honestly. Those are unconfirmed reports, obviously, but it doesn't seem like something that's going to successfully raise a fair amount of money. Betsy, you know, I mean, we've seen human trafficking problems come out of, you know, organized criminal organizations. We've seen it out of China. We've seen it in the sex trade mm -hmm. in, in Central Europe and, and Western Asia. But for a, a, a staunch Islamic terrorist organization to do this as a source of funding, is there anything that the human rights community can do to possibly thwart this from being a tool in their arsenal? You know, there's, there's the things that we already do. Um, extensive reporting is a big part of it. Uh, just, just getting the word out about human trafficking, making it part of the lexicon 
of your average person in the last, let's say, five years has been a huge deal. And that's done by, you know, for example, the UN or Global Witness putting out massive reports that show you just how widespread and horrific human trafficking can be, especially sex, sexual exploitation trafficking, which is what these girls are most likely facing. Um, there's a lot we can do there for generalized awareness. In this specific circumstance, there's not a whole lot that the international community can do to get, or that the human rights community, rather, can do to get these specific girls back, because now this has turned into more of a, a government intervention uh, situation. But, you know, that we can, as, as human rights leaders, we can use this as a way to raise some awareness, use it as a platform to talk about just how widespread human trafficking and kidnapping is, and maybe um, get more support from both governments and your average person um, for the initiatives that we have going. Betsy, the, it, it's been stated by both Boko Haram and the Nigerian government that this school was targeted because it was a girls' school. They were being educated, and Boko Haram obviously has a problem with educated women. Why is that such a fear to an organization like Boko Haram? Why are, are women bettering themselves through education such a threat to them? Well, there's actually a couple layers specific to Boko Haram, which loosely translates to Western education is forbidden. There's both um, kind of the idea that Western education overall is a symbol of imperialism um, and a symbol of the West imposing its views and especially its views on feminism and the rights of women onto an Islamic country that would prefer to be more conservative. Um, but then there's also for them a cultural element where a lot of the elitist government members have been educated um, in Western schools abroad and then come back. So it, it's, I think it has more to do with it being a Western education, a Western education style, and then seeing that as both colonialist and elitist that they're fighting against. But then you add on that it's women, which unfortunately we've just seen that the, the radical Islamist interpretation of what is essentially a peaceful religion has seemed to focus on taking away women's rights, has seemed to focus on putting them back in a room so nobody other than their family can see them. It, it's, I'm sure a historian could better get into why that's been such a huge focus for that particular um, offshoot of Islam. But unfortunately, it has. Is is it is, is this a situation that I mean, you know, we've heard condemnation by the United Nations and by UNICEF. Has, has UNICEF and the United Nations taken enough of an approach, either in action or in condemnation, that would satisfy human rights organizations or the global community as a whole? Um, I mean, there have been all of the appropriate statements of condemnation from all of the appropriate high-level people. You know, everybody who should put out a press release has put out a press release. Whether that really does a whole lot to actually get these girl ba girls back is up for interpretation. But is, is it something, I mean, was the U.S. government in the, U, in the United Kingdom's response with providing some intelligence gathering support, is there a call for the U.S. government to take a more proactive action, or is this something that we should be basically arm's length from? You know, everything I've seen has really said that the U.S. should continue this cautious approach. Obviously, you're going to have a few people saying we need to drop SEAL Team 6 in and take care of it. Um, but most of what I've read um, from both human rights 
scholars and foreign uh, diplomacy scholars, things like that, are in support of this, this fine line that the U.S. has taken where we've sent um, military and intelligence experts, um, somewhere around 50 or so, we think, um, but we're not planning on putting any, any boots on the ground, really. We're not planning a, a raid on, uh, even if we do eventually find out where these girls are, there's no plans that anybody's expressed yet um, to have the U.S. military intervene, but rather for us to support the Nigerian government intervening. And the, US, the White House and every spokesperson from the U.S. government has constantly stressed that this is Nigeria's battle and we are hoping to support it in more of an expert capacity than anything else. Congressman Al has a question for you, Betsy. Sure. You sound very pessimistic about this, and I'm not suggesting I see any reason to be optimistic about it, but if, if Nigeria can't handle it, uh, if, if we're not going to do anything directly to rescue the, the, the girls, if nobody in Europe is going to do that, aren't we just saying that they did it and, uh, and w try to get ourselves in a position to not let it happen again, though I don't even know that that is very easy to do. Uh, comment? Betsy? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree that I'm a bit pessimistic about, um, about this turning out well. Uh, it does seem to me that the, the involvement of the U.S. government and European governments, uh, it took a while. There was a lag. It took a Twitter hashtag, uh, bring back our girls, which just blew up in the last couple weeks to really get all these governments going. And if that's what spurred us on, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's going to last. Because if you consider, relate it back to, um, if you remember the Coney 2012 movement right. um, about the Lord's Resistance Army, you know, everybody was in a, in a, in a lot of uh, passion about that. There was a lot of social media about it, a lot of uh, small investments from individuals. But, you know, here we are two years later, and Coney hasn't been found, and nobody's tweeting about it anymore. So... I have my doubts about this turning out well, unfortunately, but I'm also not sure that from a foreign relations standpoint and from the standpoint of the U.S. domestic interests, it'd be appropriate for us to do any more. Bob Hines, you had a question for Betsy Walters. Betsy, I have heard uh, some reports that, there, that Boko Haram has at least um, um, heard and, and is thinking about possibly trading the girls' freedom for the release of some of their uh, in jailed, uh, in imprisoned uh, fighters. Is that something that is being uh, activated? Is that, is, is, are people working on that project, or is that just some talk? Um, apparently there are. That, that offer was made by Boko Haram in the video that Justin referenced earlier, the video of the girls um, all together. Uh, the leader of Boko Haram said that he would possibly uh, be willing to negotiate for the release of some of his brethren. Didn't specify who, didn't specify how many. Uh, the Nigerian government's initial response was that they would not negotiate, uh, though indications out just today are that they may be able, open to negotiating. They've set up a committee that will be ready to negotiate should uh, Boko Haram actually make a more concrete outreach effort. So uh, if anything is going to resolve well here, I do believe it's going to be through negotiations. It's not going to be through dropping some 
military guys in a helicopter and rescuing this, these girls. It will be through those negotiations. And those have taken place before. For example, um, in 2013, there was a negotiated release of a French family uh, in exchange for $3 million and 16 Boko Haram members being released from prison. So there is some precedent, though not on this scale, obviously. Carl Tobin, you have a question for Betsy Walters. Yeah, Betsy, uh, when you look at the picture, and it was noted on uh, MSNBC, that there are only about 100 or 150 girls in the, in the photo. Uh, do you think that the others have already been sold, or they just wanted the 150 that they had? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that anybody else is sure. Um, there were, the estimates are between 100 and 130 were actually visible in that video. Um, and if you looked at reports prior to that, there were already reports that the girls may have been split into four different groups. Um, possibly some moved into neighboring Chad or Cameroon. Uh, as I said earlier, it's, uh, there's been reports that some may have already been sold. Um, one great thing about the video was at least we know somewhere around 100 to 130 are all in one place but it also lets us know that probably the others are either in smaller groups still with the militants or have been sold, and the likelihood of getting those smaller groups back I think is even less than getting this 130 back. Alan Moore, question for Betsy. Yeah, I, I was uh, noting reports, uh, Betsy, that, that uh, people from the area have looked at those photos and have recognized some of the girls don't recognize others in the group and have uh, started to guess, uh, speculate that they may be uh, victims of other kidnappings. Um, obviously, one of the challenges in any of these uh, instances when you start uh, paying dividends to kidnappers um, is that they will do it again and again and again. And obviously, the local authorities up in that part of Nigeria uh, are woefully uh, ill-equipped to take this on. The U.S. is doing everything that the government has asked us to do. We've, often, we've apparently offered up um, capacities that we have, which are some surveillance things, some technical help, some communication stuff, but we don't have the ability to go in there. We don't have the right to go there. We don't have the capability to get up there. This is just one of these horrible, grotesque, things and we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't and I think that what you've said is accurate that we have to keep calling attention calling attention calling attention um, embarrass the Nigerians to some extent embarrass the Nigerian people in that region to think wait a minute what is going on here this is wrong um, but that's easier said than done this is just really hard stuff and the more we reward it the more we run the risk of encouraging it in the future. And it's just a horrible situation for us to be in. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. Uh, Boko Haram, even since these girls were kidnapped, they've committed at least two further kidnappings. They, committed, or they kidnapped 11 girls um, a week ago, and then there's reports that they kidnapped a further eight girls just a couple of days ago. I mean, they, they clearly have zero fear of repercussions from their government or uh, apparently from the international community if they've continued these kidnappings. It, it strikes me also that if, you're, if, if you oppose education for girls, if you make it a 
a, a high-risk enterprise for girls to go to a girls' school, there's going to be a lot of families who will say, you're staying home, you're staying home, you're staying home. I mean, it, it's just insidious in every way. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine the, the 50 or so girls who managed to escape um, shortly after the kidnapping. I can't imagine a single one of them will ever go to, back to school, let alone send their own daughters to school. I mean, how could you after a horrible experience like that? Betsy, there's, there's been a lot of, there's been some criticism through human rights groups, uh, not, not including Human Rights Watch, your, your former group, uh, that have pointed the finger at the Nigerian president, Goodluck Jonathan, uh, as, as being almost passive in this situation. Has the Nigerian government taken the actions appropriate to fix this situation, or could they have done more? Honestly, at the beginning, they most certainly did not take the appropriate action. It took the president a, a, more than two weeks to even make a comment, even make a comment, let alone actually do anything uh, following the kidnappings. And then there's, there's reports from both the U.S. and the U.K. that they were calling the president and offering our assistance um, the day that the kidnappings happened, and he was saying, no, we're going to deal with this internally. Um, so he declined international help for several weeks, which is obviously a mistake when he, he doesn't have the infrastructure uh, to put out a massive search for these girls the way that we can with surveillance uh, capabilities and things like that. And then since then, even his, his responses still seem to be somewhat reluctant and sluggish. I, I was reading that just today Nigerian troops actually reached the city where, like a large task force of Niger Nigerian troops reached the city where the, this abduction occurred. Just today, it's been nearly a month. Um, so he absolutely has bungled this. And, and while that may, that, that's another one that cuts both ways, because that does seem like an argument for intervention by the international community. But I've also seen some scholars point out that perhaps we should let him fail on this, let him be embarrassed, uh, let Nigerians be embarrassed and African nations be embarrassed because that's part of the democratic process where, you know, Nigerian, the Nigerian population has apparently been sort of slowly turning against President uh, Goodluck Jonathan uh, because of the corruption and the ineptitude of his government. And so perhaps this is a moment where, you know, you eventually you push him out of office and you get somebody better in, maybe. Uh, Denise Kreft, you have a question for Betsy Walters. What role can the international conglomerates play in this? Nigeria is a big oil-producing country. I'm thinking of your BPs, your Shells, ConocoPhillips. Mm -hmm. Can those companies put pressure on the government to speed up their speed up their efforts such that if they don't, then maybe some of these folks start pulling out because they don't want to be in this type of an environment? Um, I think that those companies certainly would have that capability. Um, they would absolutely be able to tell the government that we don't want to be associated with um, abuses of this type. Uh, to be honest, I don't, I don't see them doing that, um, because while there is an international outcry about this incident, your average person isn't at all connecting um, the oil wealth of Nigeria and the companies that give them that oil wealth to this atrocity. And without a public outcry, a company like Shell is not going to make a major statement. They're not going to pull out of a major oil-producing uh, country. Uh, so they certainly have that power. I just don't see them exercising it. 
Denise? Shell may not want to do it, but if Boko Haram is listed as a terrorist organization by the president in an executive order, and any money that comes from Boko Haram, for example, any stolen oil that they might have that they try to resell back to Shell or ConocoPhillips, puts Shell and ConocoPhillips and the other oil companies at risk on the financial side. That's how the United States gets them. That's how the United States puts pressure on them to start acting. That's absolutely true, and so there, I think there should be further investigation into whether Boko Haram has those ties um, to major international conglomerates that are subject to U.S. law. At the moment, there's no indication that Boko Haram engages in any of those um, economic activities. No, there's no indication that any of their money comes from um, the oil or, or anything like that, Which isn't to say that that connection isn't there, it just hasn't been found. Betsy, uh, last couple of questions here while we've got you. One is, you know, Boko Haram has used, has done several attacks, uh, including one in February where they attacked another school. They've attacked a bus in 2013 of school children. They are absolutely opposed to children and education. Is this a wake-up call to the global community that, you know, education... Of, of children puts them at risk in some of these third world countries? Um, I think it is a wake-up call. It's, a, it's one of many wake-up calls we've had. Uh, if you consider what happened to Malala Yousafzai in Pakistan, that was a huge wake-up call when she was shot in the head by Islamist extremists outside of her school. Um, so, you know, it's unfortunate that we need wake-up call after wake-up call, but I certainly think this is one that will call attention to just how difficult it is to get an education if you're a woman in these uh, highly conservative areas. Is the, US, is the U.S. government doing enough to promote that or get, get that process in play globally? Well, you can always do more, obviously, um, but I think this administration has uh, in many ways made women's rights uh, priority, particularly when you're talking about in, in other countries. There's absolutely U.S. support for building um, schools abroad in various areas. Um, there's support from the White House in terms of statements, obviously, uh, for women's rights in countries where their rights are routinely oppressed. Um, Alan, last question. Like said, you can always do more, but we are doing something, and we're doing good things so far. Right. Alan, more last question for Betsy Walters. Betsy, this, this, the issue of Boko Haram is, has come back into the, the Hillary Clinton realm. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of international human rights organizations uh, around two years ago were, were begging that Boko Haram be identified as a terrorist organization, and Secretary Clinton decided at the time not to so designate it. Obviously, this kidnapping had not occurred. Um, and some of the concerns of apparently inside the department were that we didn't, they didn't want to elevate Boko Haram. Um, was it a mistake now? Uh, uh, do you have any reflections on that whole matter? They are now designated. Uh, Senator Kerry designated them. Do you, do you see that uh, as a mistake then and a lingering issue, or was it just one of those things that happens? I don't see it as a mistake uh, then because I, I agree with the idea that we shouldn't have elevated them and made them more important than they are. Part of the reason that they're doing these things, part of the reason they've been escalating their violence and killing more and more people in each incident uh, since 2009 
it seems to be this internal desire to inflate themselves. They want, they're constantly trying to affiliate themselves with Al-Qaeda, even though Al-Qaeda has said we have nothing to do with them, that sort of thing. So they're constantly trying to blow themselves up. And, um, you know, some people have been worried that this international response uh, and outcry to this incident gives them more uh, credit than they're due, um, though you certainly can't stop an international outcry when there is one. Um, so, but I agree with the decision then to not designate them as a terrorist group. Very good. Uh, Betsy Walters, uh, Program Officer for the International Legal Fund and former attorney with Human Rights Watch. Betsy, thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of the show. Thanks, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Veterans Affairs crisis that's going on here in the United States. Big, big veterans issues coming up and a tragic, tragic story coming from the western states. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 Edge Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of fat waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town, yeah
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Block Talk Radio. And by the way, the phone lines are open. You can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, 877-662-3713. You can tweet your questions to us, at Backroom Politic on Twitter. And you can also email your questions, justin at backroompolitics.com. The lines are open. Hey, we're going to change gears right now and talk about another tragedy that's happening here in the United States under our noses. Uh, It has been reported over the past couple of weeks that the Veterans Administration has been literally cooking the books on how they're treating, including very seriously ill veterans, including may have caused the death of some veterans in a couple of uh, facilities uh, out west. Uh, Basically what they have done is one accusation by one of the whistleblowers is that they were forcing them to put them on the books for treatment and then taking them off and putting them into side books off the records and delaying their treatments. This is a huge, huge blow, especially at a time when veterans affairs is a huge political topic and with veterans coming back in droves that need attention from VA, not a good situation over there at New Hampshire Avenue. Uh, Carl Tubin, you work a lot with veterans groups. Uh, the news of this has got to be disheartening for the veterans benefits organizations throughout the country. What, what's the take on this? Well, the take on this is basically and 12 years ago when I first started, we knew of this type of activity. You know, they, somebody calls in. Uh, they see a doctor and they say, we'll make an appointment with Dr. X and they make the appointment and then they get a, um, uh, an email or a phone call saying, oh, we can't have your appointment on that day. We'll have to make another appointment. And this goes on and on and on. And sometimes it's a year or more before they can really get to see the doctor that, that they want to see. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the secretary um, Secretary we, I feel basically he has been doing, he has tried to do a good job. The problem within the Veterans Administration is you have assistant, a secret, a deputy secretaries and assistant secretaries who, who do not give him the proper information and those in his staff around him do not give him accurate and, and, and good information and all of a sudden, you have this blow-up. It's been coming for a long time, and here it is. Denise Crapper. Carl, I have a question for you. What are the Vietnam veterans saying about Shinseki? The American Legion came out this week and said that Shinseki should be removed. But you also have the, um, the students, um, the Iraq Afghanistan student right. organization saying that Shinseki should stay. It's, it's, what it's looking like right now is a split within the veterans organizations of should Shinseki stay, should he leave, and if he does stay, what step what steps should he take to improve the situation? But the only thing that the Vietnam Veterans of America has said is that they think that there should be a criminal investigation in Arizona of this situation. Um, but this situation involves now now three hospitals. There has been whistleblowers in Phoenix, there's been a whistleblower out of Texas and there's now a whistleblower, Dr. Jose Matthews, out of St. Louis. According to an ABC report, uh, he was removed as the head of clinical psychology at at the St. Louis Veterans Administration Hospital because of the fact 
he cited in a quote an ABC report uh, the workday started late and ended early, and they were only we were taking care of our veterans, quote unquote, who underwrite our freedom. It's completely unacceptable and unethical that they were being treated that they were being treated for as little as one to two hours per case. This is a huge tragedy and a huge blow for General Kinsaki. How can he recover from this? Well, he can recover as long as the president wants him to be there, um, and. Uh, there are many of us who feel that he has been he has fostered changes in the VA system. The problem is is that each of these hospitals are like an independent group, and and you know, we we have known for years and we have said for years that there are troubles at the hospitals, and a lot of people just ignored it. There's been assistant secretary of health over the past three years who has done nothing, Veterans Administration. The Veterans Administration, who has really done nothing, taken any of the suggestions that a lot of people have made to him to, to, to clean up this system. But Alan Moore, it, it, it's surprising a lot of Americans that a, a former general, a former Army general uh, that uh, Secretary Shinseki is, uh, would allow this under his watch to go forward mm-hmm. or be promulgated in some instances. They've got just stacks of emails and phone records that show the the malpractice, if you will, happening at these VA medical centers. Is it shocking to the American? I mean, how does Shinseki justify this action without taking IG and possibly even talk of special counsel investigations? Well, he he has ordered IG investigations into all of these. I mean, his focus for the last couple of years has been on reducing the backlog of tens of thousands of cases of veterans seeking disability determinations and disability pensions. I have no idea how much of his day, how much of his week or month is spent on the operation of the hospitals. It's a massive, massive enterprise of tens of thousands of employees, um, thousands of facilities, and millions of veterans. Is that an excuse? No, but it's obviously. Do you think that there was? Do you think that there was may have been pressure from headquarters here in Washington to get the backload down, and this is the effect that it had? No, I think that there's there's obviously been a huge focus, the, the, the huge political pressure to get the backload of disability claims down because of this flood, this literal flood of applications in the post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan drawdown. Um, but but I. You know, does that mean he's not paying attention to the hospitals? No, I have no idea how he divides his time, as I say. But I do know that he's got uh, a lot of uh, uh, IG requests in. Denise Krepp, you disagree. You think that pressure from headquarters may have pushed this to come to fruition? Absolutely. And and I say that from personal experience of seeing that happen at TSA. When they had a spike in claims at TSA, People were doing some very interesting things out in the field. And the same thing, in my mind, is happening with the VA. Is that you had a situation where you had numbers going up. Because not only you had Iraq and Afghanistan, but you also had to change the decision dealing with Agent Orange. Because all of a sudden people were allowed to be filing claims for Agent Orange when for years you couldn't file those claims. So you've got the magnitude that they didn't expect. And then you have people that they, you know, that weren't qualified handling these things. So yes, do I think it's happening in more than one hospital? Absolutely. Do I think it came from headquarters? Absolutely. But do I think Shinseki should be fired? No, I don't think Shinseki should be fired, but I think there should be a wholesale review of all of those hospitals, 
not just the three that we know about, but all of them to find out what's going on in every single one of them. Congressman Al. Two points. First of all, <clears throat> I remember when, uh, when Harry Truman was leaving the White House, he said that General Eisenhower was going to come in, he was going to issue some orders, and nothing would happen. Uh, I think generals sometimes don't really understand civilian bureaucracies, which can be, and then we just, Carl just said, that you've got a whole second tier of people that are basically saying, uh, bosses come and bosses go, and yeah. we're always here, and they carry on. And that becomes damned impenetrable unless you want to do a massive shakeup, which perhaps is needed. Because, point two, I have never heard anything good about the Veterans Administration with regard to health in the last 40 years. Uh, veterans hospitals have been criticized forever. Uh, I think it's a, a weak agency uh, that uh, some bureaucrats have got a hold of and they're sitting over there taking their salaries. Uh, something very, very dramatic needs to be done. Bob Hines. From all the conversation I'm hearing among us, it sounds to me like this is a systemic problem. It is right, goes right exactly. to the goes right to the core of the whole structure, which I think means that they really need to do a real house cleaning. And they're, you know, they're probably a lot of middle middle level administrators who are just sitting around and doing nothing and making their salary and going home. They're not doing what they ought to be doing. They're not watching about the hospitals. They're not paying attention to what ought to be done. It seems to me the most important thing to do is get somebody in charge who can clean the place out totally. It may take a few years, but this is a this is a crisis, and we should not be treating our our, our our soldiers that are coming home and needing help. We're doing a terrible job. Carl Tubin. One of the things that, that's been happening, as it happens in other parts of government, is that you know they they they, they try to show a cost savings, and where you can show a cost savings, you get a bonus. So a lot of these hospital administrators and and underlings have been getting bonuses every year. But the patients haven't been getting the care that they should get because of the cost cutting that they do. And, and this has been a problem. Congressman Al? My point is I think that, that, that Congress has basically kind of patted the Veterans Administration on the head and, and sent it off to do its work and paid no further attention to it. I don't think they funded it properly. All these people are all for going to war. Uh, don't seem to care too much about uh, taking care of the men. I remember, I remember while we were all out voting for MX missiles and what have you, that the, the sailors at MNES Whidbey were sacking groceries at the local supermarkets in order to make enough money to feed their families. Uh, so, and I think the same is true of veterans. So, what you need, I think, is is somebody at the very top, i.e. the President of the White House, who, uh, who, who makes a major issue about this. And that's the only way you're going to get what Bob described as the right cure, top to bottom, clean the house, reorganize. You know, I, I, I got to tell you something. I was, I was, I, it just so happens about two months ago, I watched a movie called Article 99 with Kiefer Sutherland and Ray Liotta. It's about a veterans hospital in uh, in uh, Chicago, I believe it was, 
Veterans Hospital has all these, how they're having to shuffle patients, how it, the bureaucracy is killing how they handle veterans. It's a, it's a great movie. I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be with Veterans Affairs, and shockingly, he told me a lot of that movie, which was based on a book, is true, and it's just, as a veteran, that blows my mind that they could have situations where they're having to do stuff under under candlelight and under flashlight. They're doing surgeries off the books. I will tell you, as a congressman, I would find certain aspects of the bureaucracy impenetrable. Mm -hmm. if, if it was an issue that wasn't massive enough to take to the secretary, and you had a determined bureaucracy that was going to dig their feet in, Mr. Congressman, you lose. But what I would Denise Crap. What I would encourage our listeners to do is contact your members of Congress and say, I'd like you to go to the local VA and take a walkabout. I mean, one of the reasons there were problems up at Walter Reed many years ago, probably you probably remember this, horrific conditions. Buildings were crumbling, patients were getting shoddy care, and it finally took a couple of people to do a walkabout and say, we can't have these, you know, soldiers and sailors come at home to this type of stuff. And that was Walter Reed, the right. premier medical institution in this Which country. Which has since been shut down, and now everything's at Bethesda. But, at Bethesda. But, but, but Bob Hines, you know, the Veterans Administration only became a cabinet-level agency in recent years. This is no. not something that we, as a government, have put a lot of effort or a lot of funding into. And now... Under this little crisis, which is looking to be an explosion now, it seems that even making Veterans Administration a cabinet-level agency and General Kinshecki, or uh, General Shinseki a cabinet-level secretary, nothing's really changed. A bureaucracy is a bureaucracy, whether they're in the cabinet or they're not. That's what we're dealing with here, a bureaucracy that's not doing its job. I had a friend who, uh, who who worked for a number of years in Canada. This is going to make Canadians mad at us, but he he said he found as he worked through the corporate structure that uh, that most Canadian executives will take a raise in title over a raise in pay, and I think it sounds to me like the. Veterans Administration just got a raise in its title. <laughs> well, he said that could be true, but Alan Moore? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering that when uh, there was a big move to create a Department of Education, its own separate agency, take it out of what was once upon a time the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, um, the, edu the education lobbyists spent years, their primary focus being to elevate the stature and during that period of time, some of the other important education issues floated along. And I think the same thing occurred in Veterans Administration. I would take issue with you that we've not paid them a lot of attention or spent a lot of money. Tens of billions of dollars is a lot of money, no matter what. It's, it's much bigger in spending than a lot of cabinet agencies. But for years, veterans groups were pushing elevated status, elevated status, elevated status. And they were kind of... Uh, diverting their attention to status rather than arguably some of the operational and funding issues, although, let's face it, after Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, we had a flood of people for which we were not geared up and prepared. But it seems to me, Alan, that when you look at this, 
every veterans benefit organization I've talked to, whether it's Carl over Vietnam Veterans of America, whether it's the American Legion, whether it's uh, uh, VFW, whether it's the, uh, the Fleet Reserve Association, all of them come up with the same issue is thank you for elevating the VA to cabinet level membership. It has not done a thing to fix the problem that veterans this day don't get the health care that is expected of them. Carl, you want to address that? Well, <clears throat> you know, there's a little card that the Veterans Administration puts out. And when we go into a meeting, we take out this card, and there's some questions. One of the questions is, where did you serve? And you tell, you tell a doctor where they serve, Vietnam. So he looks for all the Agent Orange-related diseases that he might have. Uh, Afghanistan, something else. Iraq, something else. People at the VA, when, when you show them the card, they say to you, where did this card come from? And then we turn the page and said, it's printed by the VA. Doctors don't use it. And we, when we ask members of Congress or staff, when you go to a veteran's hospital, please show this card to your people so that it's starting to be used. One staff person told me, oh, no, I can't do that. Why can't you do that? Because they'll get mad at me. I mean, but, it's ridiculous. But, you know, it, 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 it's not like this issue. It's not like this issue has been a recent issue. We had the situation, I remember, after Gulf War and the Gulf War Syndrome. Veterans were coming back from Kuwait and Iraq. They were going to VA centers, and they were going, look, there's nothing I can do for you. You got nothing. On top of the fact, Denise Kreft, that filing for your veterans' benefits is a two-year process at best just to get your notice of basic eligibility. Some of these veterans don't have that kind of time. Well, they don't have the time, and I can tell you I didn't even bother. I, I mean, I didn't bother doing it, and then I got a, 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 some little leaflet coming from the Veterans Affairs or Veterans Administration a couple of months ago saying I was eligible for their health care. I'm not going to take your health care because, quite frankly, in my family, my uncle came back with a, a bullet from Vietnam, and my grandmother had to pull him out of the VA because of the shoddy service that he got. But did you, did you actually read that leaflet? Because I got that same leaflet. And if you look at it, it says you may be eligible for VA benefits. When you go back, it's, right. if you go and look at the fine print, it says, and the VA is telling you this, oh, you got to file for your notice of basic eligibility. And I to do Wait that. a minute. But at least I have options here in Washington, D.C. When you're a veteran and you're in a very rural community and your only option is the VA because your local doctor doesn't take TRICARE, and that's, by the way, if you're a retiree, then you have to use the VA. So that we're pushing them into a system that doesn't work. But, Congressman, you would think that as many times in the past 30 years that Congress has put our people in harm's way, our people in uniform in harm's way, that congressmen might look at the end game and say, okay, how do we take care of this? Now, even with all the relevations coming, we don't hear a lot out of Congress calling for uh, accountability. We don't hear a lot of Congress talking about fixing the problem. And we sure as hell don't hear Congress. This is a slap in the face to our service members, Congressman. You, you bet it is. The thing is that Congress is very good at deciding that uh, something got to be improved and they order it to be improved and then they go off to help somebody else. 
the, the follow-through, the oversight on the part of Congress uh, of the administrative agencies is very spotty at best, and I think uh, I'm being very kind. Uh, Congress basically doesn't find oversight interesting, exciting, what have you, unless you unless you can raise hell and make some political points. Uh, it would rather move on to the next glittering issue. And so this is one where, as I said, for 40, maybe 50 years, the uh, Veterans Administration has been allowed to sit there and kind of become a statue. And, and I've got to tell you, there are some congressmen who will vote as much money as you want to buy missiles and bullets and will not give you any money to the, to, to the people who are serving sometimes don't get sufficient, let alone supporting the Veterans Administration. Carl Tubman. The, the thing I want, one of the things I want to make clear is that in the, in the last two years of the Democratic Congress, uh, Congressman from Texas, who was chairman of the Mocom VA Appropriations, they made sure that VA gets advanced funding. That's number one. And number two, he put a lot of money into the system. And he told all the veteran service organizations, you all come and the labor unions, you all come and tell me when they're not using the money correctly. Out of all of the groups out there, one only one group went in and reported to him, Edwards, Congressman Edwards, what we, where we thought the money was being not spent correctly. And, and he, why was that? Because, because the bureaucracy would get mad at them? Whatever. But, but, but we, Vietnam Veterans of America was the only group that went back to him and said, A, B, C, and D, this, ha this, this money is not being spent correctly. And well, Bob Hines. I just got a thought that I was just what someone else, playing off what Al said. strikes me that uh, on Capitol Hill, there's a whole lot of people who aren't doing very much these days because no laws are being passed. And this is the kind of bipartisan issue. I mean, I think both Republican and Democrat members alike ought to be just shocked at what they're hearing about the, the way the veterans are being treated. I would love to see a really hard look at the whole damn program and a, with a committee, uh, either the House or the Senate, and really go out and find out what's going on. And if I'm you had, yeah. Congressman, and if you had somebody who was willing to be bipartisan about it, this has happened, this has been going on under administrations of both parties no. for years. It sounds so like it. So but there's no, no reason to try and no. play the blame game. No, You've got to get at the problem. This is the need to fix a program that is yeah. taking care of our veterans. Alan Moore, we are seeing for the first time in our history the lowest level of veterans serving in Congress today. Is that is what we're seeing now indicative of that lack of veterans representation in Congress? Or? No, I don't think so. I think that, that, that there's, it is still, just from a political standpoint, and this is not just about politics, it's about fairness and justice to people who, who put their lives on the line to make a sacrifice. There's always been an enormous amount of support for veterans. It's, it, it, there's, it's high in the White House. It's high in the Congress. But this... <laughs> This is a monstrous enterprise. It's sort of a reminder that big government doesn't do big health care very well. 
and it's got we've got these we've got these veterans hospitals that are scattered all over the place. Some are a lot better than others, um, and and it's a system that that operates sort of independently. So it's always competing with funds from everything else, even though we spend these billions of dollars uh, on it. Carl Tubin? One, one thing, I think that Congress has the eyes on this situation. Uh, the, the House oh, and Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, I think the House has put out subpoenas. Uh, one of the things that the person I work with, Rick Weidman, has been talking to Congress about over the last four years, make them come to the table and swear them in because they come to the table and they lie and they and they they bundle up everything and they don't do it and i think now you're going to have some hearings hopefully where they're going to come in they're going to have to swear on the bible that they're going to tell the truth the whole truth and hopefully it'll bring some good things out so glad you mentioned that. I had a really interesting conversation with an ethics attorney about a year ago, and I, you know, as a lawyer, I can't put my client on the stand in a courtroom if I know he or she is going to lie. That would be unethical. I could get disbarred. My next question was, but what happens if my client, another political appointee, gets on the stand and lies? Do I, as chief counsel, have a legal responsibility to tell Congress that my client lied? And the answer was no. So, going forward, whoa, was that a lesson learned? Yes, with any of these hearings, put the hand on the Bible, make them swear, because if they do lie, now you're perjury. And that was a very telling, very telling. You know, you know Bob Hines, we see politically, they politicized veterans' movements for decades. And even now, this scandal comes out, Republicans are saying this is a bigger crisis for the Democrats than Benghazi. It's going to take down the Democratic administration and the Democrats. And the Democrats come back and they say, hey, this is nothing. We've spent more than any Republican in previous years. And they've politicized this. At what point does Congress and Washington stop politicizing the veterans and start taking care of the veterans? Put a period where you said stop politicizing. Yeah. Con- well, <laughs> Congressman, Bob, you guys tell me. Well, my view of the world is just what, what we're talking about here. I think Congress ought to dig into this as deep as they can, get everybody if they have to up there, and I think they ought to clean the house. I mean, we're going to fight. We know what's going on, apparently. And apparently nobody's been doing anything about it. Well, there's a whole lot of people who are supposed to be doing things about it and cleaning things up and have not been doing it. Now's the time to identify all the bad apples, get rid of them, and clean the place up. Congressman Al. Yeah, I think that's easier said than done. It is, but uh, you've got to you, do it. You need to. Uh, I, I don't know that an oversight committee in Congress <coughs> can do it all by itself. I think I think no. working House and Senate and the administration at a very high level uh, it, it, would, it would take in order to. to but do how, that. how much how much higher do we have to get? than a cabinet-level secretary in Shinseki or the president. If, if that cabinet secretary has got a whole bunch of staff that has been handed to him that he didn't choose, and uh, who, who really have no fear of him at all, it's meaningless. All right. well, and that cabinet secretary also needs help. So, if I, again, I would repeat it to everybody who's listening here. Tell your member of Congress to go in 
and what, do a walkabout. And if they don't do it, then you do it. And you call your member of Congress and say, we've got a problem. I think that's an excellent idea. I thought you were going to say, want to tell your congressman to get on this issue. The walkabout is what the will... Walkabout but will make a change. Right. Well, listen, we're, I mean, this is obviously a situation that's not going away. It's going to be in the headlines. We're going to keep an eye on this one. But when we come back, we're going to talk about a crisis in the Clinton machine. A couple of bad weeks for the Clinton factory, and it's not getting any better. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation capital, Washington, D.C. And by the way, it's time for happy hour where we're going to open up our cigars and order our drinks, and Congressman Allen's going to futilely try and light a lighter without fluid. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind, They've got Highland Scotches. They've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
tried one more once. in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's back room. Uh, we're going to change tack a little bit here, and we're going to bring up the bad couple of weeks that the Clinton uh, families had in the press, in the media, and politically. First, it starts off with the Monica Lewinsky exclusive. For those of you who have not seen it, Monica Lewinsky gave an exclusive interview to Vanity Fair that was published last week. And in it, basically came out and said some pretty revealing stuff about her thoughts on the whole, the whole uh, situation between her and the president, then President Bill Clinton, uh, her life after and since. And it, it's, it, it's a disturbing article. Alan Moore, you read the article. How disturbing was it to you to, to read through this and it's pretty scathing on the Clinton uh, political machine. You know, I didn't see the whole article, but I did see the advanced uh, reports, and and so so I'm I'm aware, certainly aware of the article. Monica Lewinsky is about the age of my daughter, and I'm about Clinton's age. And back 15 years ago, when all of this stuff went down, I was pretty uh, pretty distressed and disgusted by the fact that uh, somebody my age would be messing around with, who's the President of the United States, would be messing around with a 24-year-old. Um, her life has been blown to pieces. Um, she mostly disappeared. A lot of people said, why didn't she stay hidden? Um, I'm one of those who gives her credit for, for coming forward and saying, in her words, I want to have something to say about the narrative of my life and not just leave it to the political destruction that occurred after it came out, to late night comics who still have fun uh, with her, or pop songwriters, for God's sakes, who, uh, who just, uh, I think it was a Beyonce tune, um, made reference to uh, uh, being Lewinsky'd on a, on a blue dress just this year. So th this girl, uh, had her own personal dreams that uh, that were that were never to be fulfilled, and she says that she was inspired to come forward in part by the horrible incident up at a college in New Jersey where one boy filmed another boy, a roommate, who was kissing a third boy and put it up on the internet and and basically outing this one kid uh, to his great horror, and he killed himself. And she talked about her own suicidal tendencies way back when, when she was 24 and 25, and her mother looking after her. And she said, you know, maybe there's some way that if I tell my story and say there really is life after abject humiliation, um, maybe uh, it'll, it'll give my life greater worth. I mean, now, as far as the politics of it, if you're the Clintons... Um, 
Rand Paul tried to sort of bring some of this stuff up a few months ago, saying, who wants as in the White House this man that did these horrible things and it didn't get much traction? Um, she never became the candidate, so we don't know what the, uh, the negative political machine might have done with this. From her standpoint, uh, it's never good that it comes up, but if it has to come up, better early than late if she but, wants to run for president. It, it, it seems to me, Bob Hines, that, you know, I mean, the, the Republicans were no better using her as a political tool in their sheet in making her what became the abject joke of Washington social circles. Uh, literally, the, both the Republicans and the Clintons, we'll talk about the Clintons in a second, but the Republicans did, no, did her no favors as far as keeping her protected, or they, they, they use her as much of a political tool as the Clintons did. That's very true. And all you can say is it's, it's not the kind of thing you, you want your daughter to be involved in, and you don't want that kind of stuff in the papers. And, you know, she was left alone. Everybody was after her. Everybody thought it was just terrible. I mean, it was just a mess. And we all remember it ourselves because we were all watching it. We were all I did reading. not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, you know, it, it, it's, funny. It, it, it's funny you say that, Congressman, because one of the criticisms of the Clinton administration is that once it came out, they basically chewed her up and spit her out. She has no ill will wholeheartedly to the Clintons and what happened. She openly admits that this was a consensual affair between two adults, uh, but it, it still seems that once it did break, it, it they literally used her as political plotter and ruined this individual's well, life. And it's a scathing account on the Clintons and how they are politically. Well, they no hostages. You, you were doing fine until you start getting scathing and all of that. Incidentally, you referred several times on this program to the Clinton machine and the Clinton, you know, <clears throat> there's been one Clinton president, there have been two Bush presidents, and there may be maybe another Bush president and another Clinton president, but I don't see any big machine, and it's a colored word, and as a Democrat, I think that's not fair. Now, going back to, to what you <laughs> wait, were saying. Wait, oh, wait a minute, do I get a retort to that? Apparently not. <laughs> you have a retort to that? I do have a retort to that. You cannot. Better just ignore it. All right. All right. Go ahead, Al. Go ahead, Al. Finish your Thank thought. You. <coughs> Let's see, what was I saying? <laughs> oh, great. Here we go. <laughs> the, the, no. The, uh, no, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. But Bob Hines, I, I, well, I, I've been frustrated <laughs> since the beginning of the program with the Clinton machine. You, know? you cannot tell me that the Clintons are political animals on the highest level. They absolutely are. And you can't tell me that they don't have a political machine that they utilize? Yes, I can tell you that. So what's the problem with Clinton machine? No, no, no I, said, I, can, I can tell you that they don't have a machine in that sense. Of course they're <laughs> wired politically. So is everybody else Carl, wired? Carl Tuvin? No, that's... that's Machine is not a good word to use. They have supporters all over the country, in every state, and and there are people who who uh, if she if she decides that she's going to run for president, they're going to be right there, and it's, sure. it's and it's huge, 
and it's uh, it might even be overwhelming, depending it on. Might even be a machine. Right. Denise <laughs> <laughs> crap. Stab in the front. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, good job, Bob. Thank you for that. Denise I'm, crap. I'm Monica's age, and I can't imagine the life that she has had. You know, when you start talking about life blown out, it is. I, I mean, hi. You know, I've got a wonderful husband. I have two wonderful daughters. But I was able to have that because I wasn't in the press. I wasn't, you know, the first thing people, you know, saw with Monica was she she did whatever she did with the president. I, you know, how do you approach a potential spouse and say, get to know me, don't get to know what everybody else has written about me? How do you approach a potential employer and say, I'm incredibly smart. Please don't think about the blue dress. That has got to be incredibly awful. And what I would encourage the long, younger people here is to say, you are doing some very similar things right now. The younger generation between sexting and other things that are going to bite you in the butt. You know, it bit her in your rear end, and it will bite them. Well, and I, you have I mean, to think about the ramifications sometimes when you do certain things and how it will, you know, come out later on. Well, look, she made she made no bo- she made no bones about the fact that it was in fact a consensual relationship. She admits that she flirted. She admits that, you know, she made an entree with the president, that the president bid on it and thus came the Monica Lewinsky. And and, and it's unfortunate that we say the Monica Lewinsky scandal. It's her name is always going to be tied to that and it's it is unfortunate. But but Bob, it it, it goes back to a bigger issue. I mean, this has now become a 2016 issue for Hillary if she decides to run. Well, I'm I'm not so sure it has much to do with Hillary. And, and after all, she, it was it was Bill that she was playing around with, or he was playing around with her. And I don't. You just, you just restored my faith in you. Oh God. <laughs> no, I mean I don't think I don't think it's going to be a something that is going to say. Uh, in, in, in an election situation, I don't like Hillary to be president because Monica Winsky and her, my husband, uh, you know, four years ago had a problem. I think that's a different world. I don't think that's. I don't think I see it that but way. It, but it goes back to. I, I mean, taking off my moderator hat for a second, it, 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 go, it does go back to. <laughs> oh, stop! <laughs> it, it goes back to the situation where these are. I mean, do we want people? that will go for political power at all costs, even at the cost of a young intern in Washington, and destroy people like that. This is not the first instance. Well, I would remind you that Bill Clinton, you know, served two terms. He is not going to run again. Hillary is who we're talking about, and there is a difference. Alan Moore? Yeah, Hillary is the one we're talking about, but we're also talking about her husband. We have never been in a situation like this before where we've got a former president who might become the first spouse um, in, in, in a White House. And believe me, there's going to be a lot of reminders, if, if she really does run, a lot of reminders about him. Um, and then a lot of questions about what he's been up to in the intervening period. And there's lots of rumors that circulate around about that. Is that is it fair to talk about the sins of a spouse with regard to a candidate? Who cares? 
it gets done. People people will do that. One thing that is interesting, though, and one thing, well, a, a thing that 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 uh, that Monica Lewinsky said in this essay was that she took Hillary Clinton to task for two things. One, for allegedly calling her a narcissistic looney tune back in the day, and the, and the source of that was the close personal friend of Hillary's, who she had extensive uh, private conversations with, who kept copious notes, died uh, some years ago, and then those notes came out. So that's the source of these two things. One, that she called uh, her a narcissistic looney tune, and also to that same friend's blamed herself. She said, you know, I think I haven't always been as attentive to his needs as I might have been. And what, what Monica said is, why is it that women blame women when men act badly? And she has a point there, a point that Hillary Clinton, if she's the candidate, is going to be asked about. She doesn't have to do press releases now or in-depth interviews, and it's sort of it's sort of icky, icky uh, subject matter that people aren't going to want to ask her about. Believe me, if she's the candidate, she's going to get asked this stuff, and she knows that and needs to be prepared for that. Carl Tuvin? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I think if, if people start to bring this up, there could be a, you know, they, they, they almost split apart at the time. And if it wasn't for Chelsea, uh, they might have split apart. And, and I think there are a lot of people who... <clears throat> There are some people who, who blame her, that it was her fault, it would never happen, if, blah, 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 blah. And there are others who sympathize with her. So you're going to have that whole thing. I would hope that, that maybe, maybe because this article has come out now, that it will dampen this whole issue later on. Now, I might be, be whistling Dixie on that, that respect, but I'm just hoping that maybe because it's out now, it'll be less of an issue later. I think... I Congressman think, Al. I, I think that, 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 that's absolutely true. It, it's a political bank shot to get at Hillary through what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky. And it's very hard to make a political bank shot because it's lost so much power by the time it gets to the target. Denise Kraft? with something Alan said. First, I think women do blame women a lot more than they should. You know, men were involved too, so we, we, we ought to be, you know, tossing some dirt that way. But the other thing I, I'm really impressed with Monica is that when she came out, she said she wanted to own the story. I, I think many times women will sit back and keep their mouth shut, and, and they won't defend themselves. And I think it's very good for those of us who want to enter political um, leadership to start controlling your own story. And, and, it, and it shows that you know how to do it, but also demonstrates that you have a willingness to do it. I mean, we're you know, having all these conversations about lean in and about the glass fall off or all of these, these terms that people want to use towards women. You know, to the bare basics, it's do you want to play? And if you want to play, then you have to know how to play. And controlling your own story is one way you play the game of Right, but I, you can't expect a 24-year-old intern to know the game well enough to play the game with the big dogs here inside the Beltway. And she's That's, now 40, and now she is playing he, the game, and she's controlling her story. So good for her. Well, good for her. I will, I will give her. I will, I will give her credit, and, and, and I will tell you that reading the article, she is a very 
sympathy, it's easy to have sympathy for what she's had to go through during and even after in the following years, some 15, 20 years later, uh, what she's had to go through. It's, it's got to be tough. But Bob Hines, this also goes back to, I mean, along with this, we go back to Nigeria. Nigeria's come out as a hit possibly against Hillary Clinton. Uh, it was under her watch that she said we're not going to uh, escalate Boko Haram as a terrorist organization. We don't want to give them that publicity. We heard Betsy Walters earlier agree it was probably the right call, but the Republicans are making this a political issue as well that she can't seem to get out, out from underneath right now. It's the president's administration. It's not Hillary's. I mean, I don't know. You know, she, Hillary is not going to make that decision by herself and say, "Hey, Mr. President, I'm going to go do this." Denise Crabb. Somebody who's been involved in the decision-making process, you know, of determining who is a terrorist or not a terrorist organization. It is not purely the State Department. It is the State Department plus the Defense Department plus. Um, let's see, we have DHS, the DHS, intelligence community. We have the National. Security Council involved, and by that I'm talking about Somalia and all those pirates. And you know, we were trying to figure out, all right, which one are we, you know, designating? So this is not purely, as Bob said, a State Department issue. This goes across everybody. If you're going to go after Hillary, go after everybody else too. And then in another blow, Alan Moore, uh, Congress announced last week that they are in fact going to have a joint committee, joint special committee on Benghazi. It's the gift that keeps on giving for Republicans. It's another hardball thrown at the Clinton, at the Clinton organizational political infrastructure. I won't call it a machine. Well, yeah, the, the, the Clinton Enterprise, um, the, or, or, the, or the Clinton brand. You know, the Benghazi thing is interesting. I, I don't know if it's the gift that keeps on giving or not. Um, there's a lot of controversy about uh, the decision to move forward. Uh, 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 Minority Leader Pelosi has not yet decided whether the, the Democrats are, are going to participate or not. I hope they do. Uh, I'll, I'll just remind everybody a couple things. Um, yes, there have been a lot of hearings, but there, part of that was because there was multi-jurisdiction. You had the Intelligence Committee that spent a lot of time on this and held a lot of hearings and produced a lot of a lot a lot of work. Foreign some affairs, of which, some of which was secrets. And then you got foreign relations that 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 looked into it extensively. And you've got the Armed Services Committee that also looked in extensively. And they never really came together. So that and and as a partly maybe as a result of that, no one was ever punished other than the, you know the horrible punishment of thinking, gosh, maybe we could have done something differently and not lost these lives. But there was no one who was. Who, who had their career ended or interrupted or anything, and that's just kind of an interesting uh, aspect of it. And and then and, and then there was this email last week from the Deputy National Security Advisor that was never before released after all these subpoenas, all this massive documentation. That, that, that came out feeding any possible, any, any conspiratorial narrative that almost anybody could come up with, this, this has the feeling of a kind of a smoking gun because it's very senior White House guy says, all right, in, on, the, on the TV shows that, that poor old Susan Rice <laughs> went, went on to to mess up her career, um, uh, she was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. at the time, um, uh, and she did five talk shows and gave the wrong 
explanation in every single one of them based on these these uh, these notes that supposedly came from CIA, but in fact were massaged inside the White House. Be sure to emphasize the video. So so that that thing was released last week. Well, what are what are Republicans at that point, given this this sort of history and then the sudden emergence of this thing? What are they supposed to do? Again, they were sort of damned if they didn't, damned if they didn't. If they said, oh, that, oh, never mind, we've been there and done that, or do you overplay your hand, which Republicans are perfectly capable of doing, um, and, uh, and say, oh, my God, this really is the smoking gun. We're going to create a, a special investigative committee that gets to look at everything. My guess is after we, it, it settles down and we know whether there's, the Democrats are participating, then it will disappear again in the slow grind, hearings, et cetera, reports, and then we'll see if anything more but new comes I, out. I, I've heard words like independent counsel being thrown around the hill. Is this enough to get an independent counsel fired up? Congressman Al? Shouldn't be. Bob Hines? Not at the moment. Alan Moore, what's your take? No, no. no. All right, this is a big deal that they're doing now. This is a sort of a cross-cutting special committee. They don't need an independent counsel here. Uh, Carl Tubin. Well, one of the things that breaks me, and uh, people have said both sides do it, is that the Republicans are using Benghazi to raise money. And, and a lot of this is being done because of their base. They think that this is a great issue that will bring their base out on Election Day. And we won't know whether that's true or not until November. Shocking. I know. Shocking. Shocking. I am, shocking. I am like shocked to believe that, that any party would use a political advantage to raise money. Oh, you know what? It sounds like, it sounds <laughs> like the Democrats in the Iraq war. Yeah. My God. Denise Crow. Oh, come on, Justin. I mean, well, let's be honest. It's May now. And quite frankly, they're going to spin their wheels on Benghazi. But what they have to do is pass the National Defense <laughs> Authorization Act because that impacts everybody in everybody's district. They also have to pass a couple of other appropriations. So while they're spinning, and they probably will spin on the House side, they have to get those bills done. Because if they don't get those bills done, every single one of those members are going to have some problems come election day because they won't have done anything. But I mean, but Congressman Al, when we talk about when we talk about the Clinton, I mean, the Clinton, there's no question that when it comes to political savvy, the Clintons have cornered the market on it, at least from the Democratic side, if not nationally. It, it seems to me, though, that as we get closer and closer to a 2015 date, because we're now in a 18-month presidential run cycle, as we get closer to that 18-month mark, it seems more and more that the Clintons are going to have to up their game with everything that's been coming out pre-18 months. I think what has been coming out now is kind of Washington, D.C. at its most puerile. <clears throat> They're playing little games. Uh, the Republicans are trying to rough her up as much as they can uh, with what they've got. And, and, and I'm maintaining that as far as the American public is concerned, what they've got isn't very much. It's enough to make some headlines. It's enough to stir the pot for the Republicans. But I am willing to bet that these will not be, neither of these things will be a major issue uh, in the next presidential election. Alan Moore? Yeah, I don't think right now that in the, the creation of the new committee that Hillary Clinton is the main target. I think it's President Obama. I think that this, this, this memo that came out 
was not anything Hillary had anything to do with. She was sick at the time. This came out of the National Security Council, the deputy. It politicized that process. It, it, it appears to have politicized the process and politicized the message that Susan Rice, who was the designated person to go up there, well, Hillary didn't have her hands in that. Now, if Benghazi, Benghazi, that's, a, that's, that, that, that's not a great moment for Hillary, but, but this isn't, in my mind, aimed at her. I think this is more aimed at the, at the, at the president of the White House. Bob Hines? I think exactly the way Alan does. I think it's strictly in a White House situation. I think, I think Hillary's situa situation was she and her people were, were saying what they were told to say. That's what I feel like. And my guess is that I don't know if there's anything here or not, but I'd rather have it decided that it is not important or is important, but let's get it behind us one way or another. And I must say that the person who has been chosen by the speaker uh, to be a uh, to be the chairman of the committee is a particularly um, responsible individual. He is. He is. He's a very I'm, solid I'm that. guy. Yeah, he's, I, and I, I don't think he is going to do anything. Uh, let me put it this way. I, I don't I don't think he is going to be. It's, he's not going to be running the kind of an operation I think that Mr. Isis is in. Right. I, I do want to make this one comment before we go to break. Karl Rove ran headfirst into a brick wall to quote Newt Gingrich. Karl Rove making the comment that Hillary Clinton had brain damage. I'll tell you what. If if, if I had brain damage like that. I'll tell you what, I'll take the brain damage. Hillary Clinton, I think, is just as good as she was five years ago. Alan Moore, you're swarming right now. I think what Karl Rove said was stupid, but what Karl Rove said was not what you said he said. I'm it's, paraphrasing. Yes, I know, as a lot of people do, and that's the convenient exercise. Like that, the Democrat, that, like the Clinton machine, right? That, <laughs> that a lot of people do. What, 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 Feel better, Al? Feel better, Al? I do. Okay, good. <laughs> what, he, what he said was... And I'm defending the Clintons. What he said was, her health is going to be an issue. She had some kind of an episode. Then he misspoke and said she was hospitalized for 30 days. She was not. She was hospitalized for three days, but then she was kind of in home rest and recovery for, for several weeks. So that, that was the first mistake. Then he said, and when she finally reappeared, she's wearing the kind of glasses that you only wear if you've had traumatic brain injury. So, we need to find out what that was all about. So we're basically That's saying what he has said. So no, no, I'm simply saying he didn't say she has brain damage, and today he said, I don't think she has brain damage. And, I, and, and so, it, it's, is, is he's, the health, he's getting let me ask pounded you, and trashed. Is, is her health an issue? The health of every presidential candidate always, is an issue. It was a huge issue for John McCain. If Biden should run it'll in be his seventies, it'll be a big issue. Um, and if Hillary Clinton runs, there's a, she'll be nearly seventy, and she has had some, those health episodes, and we don't know about anything else. Carl Tubin, it's always an Carl Tubin. You got ten seconds. The other thing I want to say is that Carl Rove was doing the same thing he's done year in and year out. Spread it, starting a rumor, and, and if he repeats it enough and enough and enough, it becomes fact. Okay. This we'll see time, if Fox picks it up. This oh, time okay. Lost, right? yeah, there we go. But, that, he, but he walked away from this one. He walked away from this one a little bit today. All right. Well, with, with that being said, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about sports in the political realm. 
We're going to talk about Michael Sam. We're going to talk about the Sterlings. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Washington, D.C. Is this the dirty part we're going to do? This is the dirty part, yeah. No, yeah. It's the dirty part. Continuation. Yeah, continuation of the dirty part. Hey, uh, for those of you who missed it, uh, this week the NFL took a very, the St. Louis Rams took a very heroic effort and they drafted an openly gay football player out of the University of Missouri who was, for all intents and purposes, a solid football player, uh, the uh, defensive back uh, Michael Sam. However, alignment, alignment, defensive end, defensive end. I'm sorry, defensive end. Michael Sam, Michael Sam is, for all intents and purposes, a solid player. Was defensive player of the year year ago, Uh, and when he was drafted by the St. Louis Rams in the seventh round of the NFL draft, ESPN covered it and they showed Michael Sam kissing his boyfriend. And yet, that sparked a whole trauma of stupidity in the media and national outcry. Um, Bob, Bob Hines, we talked about this earlier. Why should America be ticked off at the fact that in a great celebration, he kissed his significant other? Let me put it this way. I have no problem with it at all. And if I met the gentleman, I would congratulate him on he was drafted. Probably he probably dropped two or three, you know. Uh, he probably around. dropped a couple of rounds he down. Dropped because a couple of, of rounds down. He's lost a good bit of money because of his situation. But the fact of the matter is, I would be very polite to him because he's so big and so strong. I would not <laughs> want him strangling. <laughs> Would you kiss it? No! <laughs> then he's crap. Then he's crap. It, it, it strikes me that, you know, look, we see, you know, we see college students with four-year-old kids kissing their unmarried mother of their children. 
on live TV. We don't hear the Republicans going off on that, but the second that Michael Sam kisses his boyfriend, oh crap, it's a media outrage. What, was that the Republicans? No. No. I mean, come, come on, 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 we're here out in the Supreme Court decision, and a lot has changed in the past year, you know, and people's perceptions have changed, and not only in the past year, but in the past five years. So should there be an outcry? No, but is there going to be one until sure. most people, you know, get to this point? Yeah, it probably is. I want to give Congressman Al the mic before he loses circulation in his arm from holding it up so long. <laughs> Congressman Al. Call on me, call on me. Yeah. Um, <coughs> this is another example of, of, of what the news on the cable news does. You know, I finally saw the, the photograph. And... From everything I'd heard building up to that, I, I it sounded like they were they were French kissing on the a, air, a, 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 a tons of romantic interlude, you know, rolling around in the hay and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> it was it was a dear. I'm leaving for work now. I'll see you when I get home. Kiss goodbye. Mm. I mean, it was it was liter literally a that was all it was. Nothing. Did he scrap? Um, I mean, at my daughter's school, we have several lesbian couples, we have several gay couples with children, and it's normal for me to see them kissing their children, you know, goodbye to school, but in other communities, it's not, and I think with time, you will see a lessening of this, but as long as there are those communities that don't recognize uh, this type of relationship, that type of photo is going to exacerbate any unfortunate biases. Carl Tubin? I thought, <coughs> I thought, I thought the criticism of him about the fact that he didn't have a good outing when he was on this uh, uh, this thing where they try out yeah, tryouts. Uh, tryout. I thought that was bizarre. I mean, as has been pointed out, he was the most valuable player in the league, uh, in his college league, a year ago. And, you know, people have a bad day. Uh, and, and I thought that was unfortunate. And I also tied in to some of the bias, possibly, to some of the bias that's out there. Alan Moore. Oh, Carl, Carl, Carl. Here come the facts. Pro Day <laughs> is the way to measure every player against every well, other player. It wasn't the Pro Day. It was, it was the Combine. It he was, had a bad combine. The combine. Well, and he had, he had two bad outings, uh, one slightly better than the other, where, you, where you, you put everybody who wants to play pro football through the same set of tests, you get objective measures. People prepare for it. It's agility. It's speed. It's strength. And obviously, depending on your position, different things are, are more important. And he didn't do very well. That's not something that people made up. He just didn't do very well. Those are fat, objective <laughs> facts. It, believe me, people, people, there was a lot of question about whether he would get, he would get drafted at all. He got drafted near the end. Did the fact that he was gay and that he might there that he had there was a lot of extra press attention and stuff make a difference? Probably did. It probably gave people some hesitation. But if he were at the top of the heap, believe me, he would have gone earlier. And the, the the point on the photo though was was you had an ESPN camera in his room. Um, I it, it's interesting, Al, that 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 you saw it as just a little peck on the lips. Some people saw. 
a little bit more, more of that, but but that's fine. I it, 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 you know it, the thing is it it is not what people are used to, and as Denise pointed out, it's certainly not the norm everywhere. And some of the complaints I saw, and I was that that people said, my children are watching this show, the whole draft show. And I don't want my children to see male-on-male kissing. It wasn't like it like was that. a porno. I didn't call it a porno. I'm talking, and I'm not saying this is my opinion. I'm simply t- talking about what some people felt, that, 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 <clears throat> that they felt uncomfortable, unprepared, unwarned. They, they didn't want their kids to see it. Then he's crap. All right, but I'm going to go back to what Alan said. Alan, you played ball. I played competitively. Sometimes you have a lousy day. You know what? But that doesn't mean you are a lousy athlete because what the people will do is they'll look at your past practice. So, I mean, there, there's a little more to that. And as far as people say, oh, my goodness, there was a kiss. Has anybody watched Major Cable these days? <laughs> or really, it, what it, they it, saw there was any different with what you're seeing oh, on Nashville and what you're seeing some of the major shows? It's, Give me a break. It was tame and it, it's, it's funny that we talk about that because as we're speaking right now, Michael Sam is part of the drafty news conference in St. Louis with the St. Louis Rams draft class, and apparently, from what we're seeing, Michael Sam's getting a lot of questions right now. <laughs> but, he's got a great boyfriend. Yeah, 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 he's got a supportive boyfriend, Congressman Al. I, I, I wanted to comment on, on Alan's last remarks, and I, th- I think they were right, saying that you know a lot of people are extremely uneasy with that, <clears throat> and uh, worried about their children. But I think and I don't say this in a smart-ass way, they better get used to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The whole gay thing, I think, has gone past the retrieval point, and uh, we're just going to have to get used to it. We're a culture in transition. There's no question about it. Bottom lines real quick before I get... This is becoming mainstream. We are changing in the last decade and a half on things I am amazed how fast they've moved. On the other hand, and on some of them, I would say I was surprised they moved that fast. But that's where it's going, and that's where it's going to be, and it's not going to change. We have to get used to it. It's going to take us a while, but we have to get used to it. Well, from a profile in courage, I want to talk about a profile in idiocy, and I want to make this a very short part of this segment. Can anybody make L.A. Clippers' current owner banned from NBA operations, David Silver? Can anybody make him shut up? Uh-huh. <laughs> this guy, this guy's it. Yeah, this guy is absolutely out of his mind. Yeah, the, the best thing you could do for him is shut him shut up. Shut him up. But yet we continue to give him press. Alan Moore, it, it strikes me that you know this guy calls out uh, Magic Johnson. I uh, unfortunately I said Michael Jordan in the opening segment, but we'll change that. He calls out Magic Johnson for for having AIDS, for having HIV virus. Well. <laughs> this guy, he, he violated that old maxim. When you're in a deep hole, stop digging. This guy continues there was, to there dig. Was, there was, there was, there was a little, little bit of sort of sympathy with a guy who is, is uh, in a private conversation that's taped and that's released. And you think, wow, what have any of us said? Wow, okay. He's got his chance to go on CNN to tell his side of the story. Some of it he's pretty good, and he's including, to great relief, I'm sure, of the NBA. He says, if the owner, if the owners say 
you're gone, then I'll leave. There's no, it's not going to do anybody any good for me to, to contest that, but I hope they give me another chance. And then he goes on this riff about, of all people, Magic Johnson saying that he never did anything for the community. Let me tell you something about Magic Johnson. He is the guy in 1991 when he came out and said he was HIV positive, something he discovered when he was trying to get some insurance, not because he was sick. And he, did, he went public, and he brought into full public attention the fact that, that men having sex with women and women having sex with men were a major factor of transmission. He was the first one. He helped educate America and has worked for 24 years since then, or 23 years, to educate America how you can get HIV and what you shouldn't do. He apologized for past behavior. He has saved tens of thousands of lives. Carl, this guy, Magic Carl Johnson. Tubin. The other thing you can say about Sylvia is that he's an angry because it was Magic Johnson that helped him get his NBA franchise. And if, without Magic Johnson's help, he wouldn't have got it. I don't know about that. And that well, that's the fact. Yeah. Yeah, the fact. There's, there's controversy on that statement. But I, I will say, though, did, you know, I don't know if you two know this. We're, we're actually still on the air. You guys are having a conversation Oh, we have breaking news. What's yeah, that? breaking news. John Conyers did not qualify for the primary ballot. Whoa! Whoa! Tell me a story. Wait a minute. Screw, no. tell me a story. John Conyers did not. What's the okay, breaking news? Okay, What's okay, the story? Okay. I, I'm reading from a friend at Roll Call. John Conyers will not appear on the primary ballot according to a ruling that was issued by the local county clerk today. Quote, unquote, seeing that I do not have the authority to rule on the constitutionality of laws, it's my determination that in accordance with the current laws and statutes of the state of Michigan, the nominating petitions filed by Congressman Conyers are insufficient to allow his name to appear on the August oh, 5th primary wow. ballot. Let me explain who John Conyers is. Yeah, okay, Congressman Al, go ahead. very senior African-American congressman who is chairman of the judiciary, or is the ranking, ranking member on judiciary. On judiciary, was the chairman. Uh, and he's been here forever. 25 terms, 50 years. Yeah. Congressman Al, you served with John Conyers. He's looked at on both parties as old school, willing to wheel and deal and compromise. This is a huge blow to the old school thinking in, in, in Congress right now. Well, but he was also a lightweight. Uh, is a lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure... Wait, 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 wait. I want to get this straight. Let me get this straight. That was not a dirty word. No, it wasn't a dirty word. Not an a-hole. No, wait a minute. He was. He is the ranking member on judiciary. Was the chairman of judiciary under Nancy Pelosi. He served 25 terms in Congress, and he's a lightweight. Yep. Oh my. Bob Hines, do you agree? Yes, I do. Why? Well, because the voters returned him. Every year, every two years for 25 years. Yeah, he, he, There's a number of members of Congress who are not exactly, you know, Einstein's. <laughs> okay. So, with that, with, this is, I don't I know where to go with this. Okay, so let's Drop recap. It. Stop it. digging. Yes. No, I'm not digging. I don't know where to go with it. To expand upon No, no. Like no, but but uh, Alan Moore, this is a huge this is a huge step. All of a sudden now, it's not guaranteed. No matter how 
how senior you are in Congress, that you're automatically going to get on the ballot. Is this a matter that John Conyers took kind of a lackadaisical well, issue it on it? It sounds like it. I don't, I don't know what the qualifications uh, are. Is let, it, let me are there petitions? Yeah, we need a little more information According here. to um, roll call, two individuals collecting signatures from Conyers were not found to be registered voters, and therefore the signatures were ruled invalid. Um, the other problem is that one of the individuals who's collecting signatures uh, may have been a wanted fugitive. So according to roll call, one of the signature collections for John Conyers' signatures was a wanted fugitive? Possibly. Possibly. Allegedly. Th that's what roll call is saying. That's what I'm looking at. Okay. Now, having, having, having trashed him, let me say, I, th I think those are utterly absurd reasons to not let yeah. uh, a, a person run. And uh, it suggests we need to change the rules. Let the rules be damned. <laughs> 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 okay. For my good friend John, yes, I'm saying. <laughs> Oh God! I can't. I can't. I can't. That fact that he is not a great heavyweight in the Congress. They need representation too, says Al. The fact of the matter is, if you know, you got some people back home who don't know what they're doing. That's a wholly different thing. And you, as a congressman, you don't think about that. You think your people back home are doing the right thing. Apparently, getting allegedly wanted fugitives <laughs> to get signatures in a voting district uh, that might be an issue. Uh, with that. Holy crap. I did not see that one going that way. I I definitely didn't. Really, Al? Good Lord. Uh, with that in mind, I'm going to go to my favorite part of the show. It's my favorite segment, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, innuendo, buzz, breaking news, as we just heard, uh, around the Beltway, outside the Beltway. Denise, you can use it and you tell me a story. Congressman Al, you've already gone. You've blown that one. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Um. Uh, Are you referring to our talk about gay? Uh, no, 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 no! Congressman, no. <laughs> stop digging! Holy crap, David Silver, you're killing me! Uh, several days ago, the uh, speaker was down in Texas, and he was in, in an interview with a reporter, and he was musing a little bit about uh, the Congress and himself, and he said that, yes, I am running for re-election, I expect to be speaker next year, but I'm not sure that I'm going to you know, spend the next two years in Congress. That was reported in Politico today. In today. Bob, real quickly, is this a, is this a sign of the frustration of the speaker, do you think? Um, as, John, as he said, he said, I'm 65 this year. He said, my, you know, my, my family died young. And I, you know, don't know if I want to, you know, spend my last year, years not with my family and doing more things personally. I wow. don't know. But he's, He's, he took a look at it. Now, I don't. I suspect that he will probably, I know he'll be reelected. He's won his primary. He won't have much of, a re, of, of an opponent. It's a pretty safe district. And the fact of the matter is, he'll get elected easily, and he'll be able to do what he wants to do. I suspect you probably will serve his full term and then leave. But I've always, I've thought that for a year and a half. Denise Kraft, tell me a story. Many of you know that I've testified twice now before a Defense Department uh, panel on sexual assault uh, mainly because of my experience of what happened at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. On Friday, Senators Collins and Murray asked for an IG investigation into what was going on at the Merchant Marine Academy. The problem is going to be is that the IG didn't do the investigation I asked for in 2011. 
And so it'll be very interesting to see how they explain why they didn't do the investigation in 2011, and when are they going to do this investigation in 2014? Interesting. We'll keep an eye on that story. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, um, in the last in the last two weeks, uh, two women of very high accomplishment, one former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and then later the head of the uh, International Monetary Fund, the managing director, Christine Lagarde, had been invited to give commencement speeches, one at uh, Rice at Rutgers and uh, Lagarde at Smith College, and then a little movement in both cases uh, came forward that, oh my gosh, we don't want Condoleezza Rice to speak because she was involved in the decisions that led to the Iraq War. The, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Joe Biden all voted to do that too, but, but let's not let her speak at Rutgers and students and, and some faculty step forward. And she said, I don't want to be a distraction. This is a day for the graduates and the uh, and their parents and families, and, and I'm going to step back. Then a week later, the same thing happened at Smith College, where Christine Lagarde, uh, this distinguished French woman, first woman ever to run the IMF, um, was also part of a, of, of a movement, faculty and students, a few hundred people, but not just a handful, and she said the same kind of message. This is really, really sad to me that 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 people of high accomplishment, be they women or men, can't give speeches at colleges, this political correctness. We've seen some boycott moves against people, and it turns out there's, there's today and yesterday some reports about what the Warren Buffett Family Foundations have been funding, and it turns out that, that his late wife's foundation, which he's, I think, uh, is, is chairman of the trustees, is the biggest donor over the last 11 years to the Planned Parenthood uh, Federation. I don't have any brief with them, but they are the largest provider of abortions in America. Just wait, just watch for pro-life people to, to start calling for boycotts against- Berkshire Hathaway products? Berkshire, their Hathaway products like their Dairy Queen, Geico, um, uh, Coca-Cola, ones that they, they either own or have, have significant uh, ownership in. Wow. This is really, really a troublesome trend. That's, that's uh, huge. Trend. That, that's huge. And he's suggesting that the, 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 the right will take up the left's tactics. Absolutely. I've always, Absolutely. I've always maintained that political correctness was an aberration on the left, and it's dreadful, and I think it I think it's all. And I wished it. You were keeping it to yourself. Yeah. You Democrats. <laughs> Carl Tubin, two minutes. Tell me a story. Well, let's take less than two minutes. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what Congressman Conyers will do at this point. Whether he'll try for a write-in campaign because it's a primary with multiple candidates, or whether he'll just retire and take his pension after 50 years. Wow. I'll make you a bet if he files, he'll win. Yeah, probably, probably. Uh, <clears throat> so Clay Aiken won the Democrat primary, unfortunately, almost by default. Clay Aiken, his opponent, fell in his house and passed away yesterday. Clay Aiken, rightfully so, suspended all of his political operations in respect to his uh, to his uh, opponent, uh, but. 
that's my story. With that, on behalf of Congressman Al, what are you doing, Alan? I'm hearing James drop everywhere. Are you? What are you doing? I'm just collecting my winnings. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> I'm um, shocked. Shocked. No gambling was going on here. Kel Supreme. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Ellen Moore, Carl Thuvin, special thanks to our special guest, uh, Betsy Walters from the International Legal Fund. Uh, I am your moderator, Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Oh, by the way, you can find us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics on the Twitter system, and you can also email us any comments or story ideas, justin at backroompolitics.org. Uh, with that, thanks to our producer, Brent Sullivan. Special shout-out to our intern, our, our, uh, our intern, Yarden Kokona. She's down in Florida. She'll be joining us here in Washington a little bit. And uh, with that, we are live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? This is the place to go. You ought to be here. Bob, you're screwing this up for me, dude. You're killing me. What happened to the place to be? It was so simple. That's all he wants, Bob. That's all he wants. Don't improvise. Don't ad lib. I want, it's the place to be. And that's it. Forget free speech. Screw you. I'll go McLaughlin on your ass. We'll see you live from Shelly's next week, 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>